Go ahead and take your Bibles and open them up to Psalm chapter 1. Psalm 1. Uh, Psalms, if you're not familiar with the Bible, Psalms is, is one of the easiest books to find in the Bible, besides like Genesis and Revelation, because they're at the beginning and the end. But Psalms is in the, in the middle, and it's also the biggest book of the Bible. So if you like turn to the middle of your Bible, there's a good chance that you're going to land in Psalms or, or you're going to be very close to it. Uh, Psalm chapter 1. Uh, Charles Spurgeon said that it's an old saying and possibly a true one, that every man is seeking happiness. And if it is so, then every man should read Psalm 1, for this directs us to where happiness is to be found in its highest degree and purest form. I agree with Spurgeon on that, and I believe that the approach of a new year is a great time to reflect on a passage like Psalm 1 as this is the time of year where people's desire for happiness drives them to think about the past year while considering maybe how the coming year could be better. And so then out come all of the New Year's resolutions. Who's doing New Year's resolutions? Who's Anybody in here doing that? Oh, come on. I find that hard to believe. Yeah, I, I see somebody tentatively raising their hand and, and admitting that. Well, besides you guys, almost everybody in the country is doing some kind of New Year's resolution. And, uh, and all kinds of resolutions, like in, in 2019, I resolved to, to lose weight. Uh, in 2019, I'm going to exercise more. In 2019, I'm going to quit smoking, or I'm going to start saving more money, or I'm going I'm to learn a, a new skill. And what drives people to make all kinds of resolutions and goals is that all of us are on this quest for contentment. Now, there's nothing wrong with making certain goals to be healthier or to live in a more responsible kind of way. There's nothing wrong with that in and of itself. There's nothing necessarily wrong in seeking a change in certain circumstances that we might be experiencing. The problem is, uh, not just during New Year's, but every day, we are tempted to think that ultimately our contentment and our happiness and our satisfaction comes in all those other things uh, that we want, and so we try to use God to get those things that we think that will, will bring us ultimate happiness. But the psalmist here, in Psalm chapter 1, is going to remind us that ultimately what your life is about is God having Him at the center of your life, following and worshiping and loving Him. And that needs to be the trajectory of our lives if we really want to have a happy new year. So as we stand at the end of 2018 and we look ahead to 2019, please stand with me now as we hear from God's Word. And if you're looking to hear from the Lord as you start a new year, you're thinking, God, what do you have to say to me uh, as I get ready to enter into 2019, well, guess what? This is a great day for you because you have a word from the Lord right now. In Psalm chapter 1, the Word of God says to you, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and all that he does he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, 
but the way of the wicked will perish. Let's pray. Father in heaven, this is your holy and inspired word. The, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Father, I pray this morning that you would help us to delight in your word. I pray that as we come to Psalm 1, and as we look at some other scriptures, that it would be like a, a banquet, and that you would feed our souls with the wisdom of your word, and that we would walk away blessed and encouraged because this morning we have heard from the Lord. Help us, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Psalm 1 is kind of a, a gateway to the entire book of Psalms. It, it sets the tone for everything else that follows, and it paints a portrait of what God's kind of person looks like in the world. And it's written in a way that's meant to, to cause the reader to aspire to be the kind of righteous person that is described in this chapter, to walk in the way of this man and to enjoy the blessings that come with being such a person. It's really an invitation to all of us, beckoning us to pursue God, and, and, and to pursue all the things that are found in God. Indeed, the psalm starts out by saying, blessed is the man. Now, that word blessed can be translated happy. Happy is the man. Now, sometimes in very conservative kinds of churches, the concept of happiness is minimized, maybe even considered unspiritual. In fact, it's not uncommon to hear people say, and I'm sure that I've said it myself, God doesn't care about your happiness. He cares about your holiness as if the two were opposed to one another. But the kind of, of blessedness that the psalmist is writing about is to be differentiated from a shallow, fleeting kind of happiness found in sinful pleasures, and it's even different than the happiness that may be found in things that are not in and of themselves sinful, uh, but they are, they are lesser and they're temporary compared to God Himself. Uh, the word blessed here in the Hebrew is actually in the plural. So it's hinting at an experience that can't really be summed up in just one word. Uh, the psalmist here is describing an experience of, of deep-rooted joy and satisfaction that is rooted in a right relationship with God. It's an enjoyment of the favor and grace of God in one's life, and it is experienced as one is walking in fellowship with the Lord, as one is pursuing God through walking in holiness. Matthew Henry writing on this psalm, said that those only are happy, truly happy, that are holy, truly holy. He, he did not separate happiness from holiness. Uh, in the New Testament, Jesus begins His Sermon on the Mount with the same kind of language, proclaiming the way of blessing. He says, blessed are the merciful, blessed are the peacemakers, blessed or, or happy are the pure in heart. Jesus connects godly blessing, godly happiness with holy living, with a lifestyle that brings one into a greater experience of close fellowship with the Lord. And the psalmist here at the, at the entryway to this book of prayers, a book that is full of highs and lows, full of pleasure and suffering, uh, where one moment we're reading about the heights of ecstasy and another moment in Psalms we're in the depths of despair, before we read about any of those other experiences, 
The psalmist here is showing us first and foremost where, the, where a true sense of peace and contentment and satisfaction in all of the experiences of life can be found. And, and he points us to this blessed man as the example for us to consider. And the first thing that we learn about the blessed man, the truly happy man, is that he guards his heart. The blessed man guards his heart. Now, you would think that a psalm about holiness would be full of a list of exhortations and rules and regulations. That's typically what we think about when we think about holy living. And maybe that's why sometimes we disassociate happiness from holiness because we don't find a long list of abstract rules uh, to be uh, very joyful. Uh, we, we don't tend to, to get excited about that. But that's not where the psalmist begins. Instead, he talks about what we allow and don't allow to influence us, uh, what kind of thinking that we allow into our heads and into our hearts, because holiness is not mainly about what we do externally. It is instead about who you are internally. It's about the thoughts and the desires of your heart. You may have heard the saying, you are what you eat. Well, the Bible, in the Bible, the constant warning is that you are what you think. Or as the, the proverb says, uh, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. And so verse 1 here says, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. That, that, that word wicked there carries the idea of the, of the loose or the, the corrupt. And the blessed man, the happy man, the truly content and satisfied man does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. He does not listen to the advice or the wisdom of the ungodly. I put wisdom in quotes because there is a kind of worldly wisdom that is contrary to the wisdom of God in the Scriptures that at first glance seems right and seems good. But the blessed man does not listen to that. He doesn't take it to heart, and he's not allowing it to shape his thinking. And then the psalmist says that the blessed man also does not stand in the way of sinners. Uh, to stand in someone's way in, in Hebrew vernacular means to stand in their shoes, so to speak, to do what that person is doing. And notice, by the way, this downward progression uh, in this first verse. You go from walking to standing. There, there's a subtle implication that if you are walking in the counsel of the wicked, you're going to end up acting wicked yourself. But notice what the psalmist says next. The blessed man does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. He does not stand in the way of sinners. And then it says, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Again, notice the downward spiral. The idea is that one goes from walking to standing to sitting. And sitting in the seat of scoffers is the climax of this evil descent. It's when you find yourself among the scoffers, among those who hate God. You're identifying with them. You are being assimilated into that community. Uh, but the downward spiral didn't start there. It began simply with the kind of counsel you listened to and the kind of messages that you were embracing in your heart. Now, the idea of being a scoffer in the Scriptures is linked with being a fool. Uh, over two dozen times we see in the book of Proverbs that the fool <clears throat> is the one who scoffs. Uh, the one who mocks the way or the counsel of God, who laughs at the wisdom of God and who instead is trusting in himself and in his own wisdom and his own ability to interpret life and reality and to make choices for himself. Now, we underestimate just how much wicked counsel comes at us every day. 
Uh, We live in a society that is constantly saturating us with ungodly wisdom. And many of us, on a weekly basis, consume hours upon hours upon hours upon hours of media content going into our heads and into our hearts through music, through movies, through television programs, through political talk radio, and through a host of other mediums. And very often, uh, it's coming into our heads without any sort of critical judgment or evaluation on our part. We're just kind of lapping it up, and over time, we become affected by it. As secular pop music and country music and so-called romantic comedies tell us how to think about sex and relationships, as daytime talk shows tell us how to think about parenting, as news networks and talk show hosts on the radio tell us how to think about politics, and by the way, whether that wisdom is coming from the political left or from the political right, stirring up anxiety and fear and anger in you because yet again the sky is falling because that's how the media operates, to get you riled up and worried about the next crisis as a strategy to keep you watching and listening. But, but, such, but whether, regardless of where, where it's coming from, uh, such counsel is almost always detached from the gospel and from the wisdom of God's Word, and we saturate ourselves with counsel from all of these various sources almost constantly, often without giving it a second thought. And if we are not careful, if we are not discerning that ungodly, worldly counsel is going to sink into our hearts, and in time, it's going to to seem to be very attractive and very wise. And God's ways, over time, it's going to seem very backwards and antiquated and just not relevant and not for our own good. It's exactly how Eve was deceived by the serpent in the garden. Did God really say that? Is God's way really best? Surely this other path would be better for you. Now, if we are honest with ourselves, we can think of times where we too have listened to messages from the world and have found them attractive and wise and and even took some delight in them where we have listened to the counsel of the wicked so much and for so long we end up standing in their way. And some of us may have even found ourselves sitting in the seat of mockers uh, where we find ourselves thinking and doing and engaging in a way of life that initially we never thought that we would be living that way, uh, where we end up experiencing the pain and the consequences of our rebellion against God, and we wonder, how in the world did I get here? I never thought I would be doing anything like this. That wasn't part of the plan. How did this happen? Well, it all started, it always starts, with a stubborn refusal to guard our hearts, to allow counsel into our minds uh, that is ungodly, embracing things that we know are contrary to God's Word. We, we don't think on things that are true, as the book of Philippians exhorts us to. It, it all begins with just a little bit of flirting with the counsel of the wicked, because departures from God never happen in one big step. They always happen in increments. 
in smaller steps, little compromises here and there from, from walking to standing to sitting. They always begin with little shifts in the heart, moving bit by bit in a direction away from God. And young people, I especially want you to hear this. Not that us old people don't need this too, <clears throat> but often young people, <clears throat> teenagers, for example, have an extra measure of self-confidence because they haven't fallen flat on their faces in failure as much as us old people have. And so you are, teenagers, especially at risk here, and you get mad at your parents, and you think, why won't they let me listen to this music? Or why won't they let me watch this movie? Or why won't they let me hang out with this crowd? I'll be fine. Don't count on it. Don't count on it. How often have I seen a young person eventually abandon their church and abandon their faith, and it never happened overnight? It almost always begins with allowing their hearts to be captured just a little bit through ungodly music or ungodly movies or other forms of entertainment or worldly friends that are bombarding them with messages contrary to God's Word. I'm not against music, and I'm not against movies, but I am against anything that will captivate your heart and steal you away from God and the superior happiness that comes by being in close fellowship with God. You've got to guard your hearts, young people. And parents, you need to help your kids guard their hearts while guarding your own. Because Jesus warns in Matthew 15 that out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. And so as we face a new year, the issue before us is not making resolutions to tweak little aspects of our lives, of our behavior here and there. The main issue should be to protect our hearts because as Solomon writes in Proverbs chapter 4, from the heart flows the springs, the issues of life, because as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. So the blessed man, first and foremost, guards his heart. But that's not all. The blessed man also opens his heart. That this godly man in Psalm 1 is not just described in negative terms by what he does not do. He is described also in positive terms by what he does do. And it's interesting what the psalmist says about him. He doesn't say, well, the blessed man rejects all those rotten things in verse 1, and as an alternative, the righteous man then goes to church, gives money to the poor, prays three times a day, fasts twice a week, goes on missions trips, preaches from the pulpit. You know why he doesn't say that? Because all of those outward religious-looking things can be done by somebody with a heart that delights in evil things. You can do all of those things that look externally good, and you could still be a wicked person. And so the psalmist here continues to focus not on outward appearance, but on the heart, on the heart of the blessed man, the, the, the truly happy man. This man, while refusing to allow the things of the world to capture his heart, he at the same time isn't heartless. He's not shutting his heart off to everything. Instead, the psalmist says in verse 2, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. The truly happy person, the truly blessed man is walking down a different path, a different road, because the pleasures of the Word are superior to the pleasures of the world. This man is not just forcing himself to do devotions every day, like we do sometimes. 
This man actually delights in the law of the Lord. The the idea is is this, this man just cannot wait to soak up and absorb more of the Word of God. This is a man who agrees with David who wrote in Psalm 19 that your words, God, are more more to be desired are they than gold, even fine gold, sweeter also than honey and dripping of the honeycomb. Do you view God's word in that way? Be honest. Is that your attitude towards the Bible? If it isn't, you won't have a happy new year. Not in the truest and fullest and richest sense. But the blessed man finds himself in a position of increasing delight in the Word of God, and so we're told in verse 2 that on his law he meditates day and night. Now, now what is meditation? Sometimes when we think of meditation, uh, you know, we think about some, some guy sitting in the, the lotus position kind of saying, um, and he's just kind of emptying his mind of, of all kinds of things. That, that's, that's meditation in, as, as defined by Eastern religion. That's not biblical meditation. Biblical meditation isn't emptying your mind. It's actually filling your mind with the things of God. Meditation is intentional and ongoing contemplation of God and His Word. And think about this. How many times have you opened up your Bible, and you have read a verse, or two, or three, or whatever, and you close your Bible, and five minutes later, you can't remember a single thing that you read? You're laughing, because it's happened to you, and it's happened to me. Or maybe you remember what you read, but you haven't a clue what any of it means, and you just kind of move on with the rest. Okay, well, that was interesting. You just move on the rest of your day. You don't even think about it. Again, that's, uh, that's not meditating on God's Word. If you are meditating on God's Word, it means that you are turning it over in your mind. That word meditate, meditating literally is, it carries the idea of muttering. Uh, you're, you're kind of carrying this word with you. You're muttering it to yourself in your, in your mind constantly. You're thinking about it through the day. You're contemplating how it applies to your life, to your relationships, to your marriage, to your money. Instead of filling your head with the counsel of the wicked from, from TV or on the radio all the time, you are now intently thinking about the law of the Lord. Or if you are getting messages from those other sources, you are evaluating them through the grid of the Word of God. That's meditation in a biblical sense, intently thinking about the law of the Lord. And that's what the blessed man is doing here in Psalm 1. Now, the Bible recognizes that this is a struggle because our appetites have been trained to enjoy and be interested in other things. Isn't that true for you? Don't don't you find that experience in your own life? Don't you find it sometimes, like I find it sometimes, hard to to get up and open this book and start reading it? And there are like, there are times, I'm I'm your pastor and I'm confessing this, there are times where I'd rather do a million other things than open up the Word. It It is warfare. And so we wake up in the morning and our first instinct is to check Facebook or Fox News or sports scores. Because we naturally crave and love and delight in those things, and we don't naturally, apart from God's work in our hearts, love and delight and crave God's Word. That's why the psalmist says in Psalm 119, he prays this, he says, Open my eyes, God, that I may behold wondrous things in your law. That is a great prayer to incorporate into your Bible reading time. Do you ever do that? 
before you open up the Bible? Do you pray, God, open my eyes. Help me to see the riches of your word. Help me to see that this word is sweeter than honey on the honeycomb and it's better than gold because right now I don't feel that and I need your help, God. It's a great prayer. And that prayer is a recognition that we need supernatural help in acquiring an appetite, a taste for God's Word. And so as we get into the new year, consider making a renewed commitment to get into the Word of God and get the Word of God into you on a daily basis. Use a Bible reading plan that takes you through the entire Scriptures in a year. Uh, participate in the weekly fighter verse memory program that I was talking about earlier. Maybe have another brother or sister in Christ hold you accountable in regards to your Bible reading. Maybe make a commitment with somebody else in this church to, to, to we're, we're going to walk through the Scriptures in a year to, together. We'll, we'll, we'll do it on our own, but we'll, we'll check in with one another. You know how sometimes when people start like new exercise programs and they say it's easier if you're going to do that with somebody else? Right? There's that extra encouragement and help and accountability. I think the same thing is true in regards to uh, uh, making a commitment to read the Word of God uh, as well. Bring somebody else alongside you in that journey. And if there's other things that are getting in the way of your Bible reading, guess what? Cut them out of your life. Well, what does Jesus say? If, you're, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If, you, if, you're, if your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. And make a fresh commitment to get the Scriptures into your head and into your heart and meditating on the things you're reading and the things that you're memorizing. So don't be discouraged if you're reading the Bible and you're not having mountaintop experiences every day. Because of our own indwelling sin, we must, on this side of heaven, always fight for joy and delight in God's Word. And some days will be harder than others. Some days, some days, friends, it's just going to be an act of faith for you just to crack this book open and read it even though you don't feel like it. But, you, but by faith, you're coming to the Word because you believe what it says, that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God, and that this is what you really need. But in time... As the habits of meditating on God's Word are woven into your life, there will be, bit by bit, uh, there will come an increasing interest and appetite for God's Word. John Piper once said that just like the pleasures of the world are awakened by looking at them long enough, so the pleasures of the Word are awakened in the believer by looking at them long enough, meditating on them day and night. And so you will find yourself identifying with the prophet Jeremiah who wrote, your words were, for, were found, and I ate them, and your words became to me a joy and the delight of my heart. May God help Harbin's church to be a people like that, a people of the Word. Now, as a result of shunning the counsel of the wicked, and instead of delighting, and instead delighting in God's Word, an amazing thing happens to this man, namely, that he becomes abundantly fruitful. The blessed man is abundantly fruitful. Look at verse 3. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and all that he does, he prospers. The psalmist, living there in Israel, is familiar with times of plenty and times of severe drought. But the psalmist here likens the blessed man to a tree that has been carefully and intentionally planted at a nexus of different streams all coming together in one place. And for that reason, we see in verse 3 that the leaves of this tree do not wither. 
regardless of the weather, regardless of the conditions, even when other plants and trees around it may be dying, this tree continues to flourish because its roots go deep and have an ample supply of life-giving water. The blessed man, the righteous man, is like this tree. Whatever he does, he prospers. And by the way, when it says prospers, that's not referring to some sort of health and wealth prosperity gospel. That's, that's, this is metaphorical language that, it's, that speaks of enduring, of flourishing, even of growing. You see similar language in Jeremiah 17. Jeremiah 17 says, uh, Cursed is the man who trusts in the Lord and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. Now, now you could say cursed is the man who walks in the counsel of the wicked. That's, that's pretty much what he's saying there, who sits in the seat of scoffers. And remember, the scoffer, the fool, is the one who disregards the counsel of the Lord. He despises the law of God. He instead trusts in man. He trusts in his own wisdom. And how will such a man fare? Jeremiah says he's like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited salt land. In other words, he, he, won't, he, he won't just he won't endure. He won't flourish in the long run. And so then the text goes on to say, however, contrasting him with another man, blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when the heat comes, for its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. Notice, notice here that God's people are not promised an easy life. They're not promised freedom from affliction and trouble and difficulty. Uh, to be happy in the Lord is not the same as living a pain-free, easy kind of life. Notice here that, yes, this man is trusting in the Lord, but what is his experience? There's some heat that comes. There's some drought that comes. There's, there's times of great difficulty and pain that are coming. This isn't a shallow, happy, clappy prosperity gospel. Trust in God and you'll get a new car and a big house and you'll be disease-free. That's nonsense. The Bible never promises you that. The Bible promises you the opposite. It promises affliction and tribulation and suffering for God's people and sorrow. For some of you, 2019 is going to bring some suffering and some sorrow. That's not what we want to hear in a New Year's sermon. But difficulty's coming. Some of you are going through great difficulty even now, and perhaps even in a season of darkness and depression. The Bible is not ignorant of those things. Indeed, after you read Psalm 1, keep reading the Psalms, and you'll see the psalmists struggling with dark days and profound sadness. Christians can struggle with significant depression could be spiritual in nature or in this fallen world as our bodies break down. There can be a physiological component to depression. A lot of times it's a mixture of both all wrapped up in the one. Charles Spurgeon, whom I quoted at the top of this sermon in regards to biblical happiness, himself endured long seasons of depression. Yes, Spurgeon, the prince of preachers. And, some, and, and he couldn't discern often the cause of that depression. He'd just like end up weeping for like an hour. But in the end... Because his roots were sunk deep in God's word and truth, he survived it. 
He managed to fight through those seasons. And a trust in the sovereign oversight of a good God that he trusted kept him hanging on. Indeed, Spurgeon wrote that, uh, he said this, it would be a very sharp and trying experience for me to think that I have an affliction which God never sent me, that the bitter cup was never filled by his hand, that my trials were never measured out by him, nor sent to me by his arrangement of their weight and quantity. In other words, these aren't random things that are happening. The Lord is at work, the Lord is doing something, and the Lord, even in this, is good and can be trusted. Spurgeon's hope in God did not come easy. It was a fight. It was a fight. It was a battle. Indeed, this was David's experience in Psalm 42. David was no stranger to dark nights of the soul. He said in Psalm 42, my soul is cast down within me. Indeed, he felt like he was drowning. He said, said, your breakers and your waves have gone over me. But then what does he do? He preaches to himself and says, why are you downcast, O my soul? Put your hope in God, for I will again praise him, my salvation and my God. There is a note of defiance in his depression. Now, the only way David could fight and preach truth to himself so that he could hope in God the only way that, that, that he was, would have been able to do that was that David was a man of the Word. He knew God, he knew God's character, and he knew God's trustworthiness through the Scriptures. And sometimes in your darkest times, that is the only thing that you have to hold on to. And this is why if you're in a season of depression, the worst thing you can do is turn away from God's Word. The worst thing you can do is isolate yourself from God's people who will remind you of God's Word. If you're, if you're here this morning and you struggle with depression, you're going to be tempted to not be here. Don't do that. Don't cut yourself off from the people of God. Don't cut yourself off from others speaking God's truth, commending the wisdom of God into your life. Don't withdraw. Be with people who will join you in the fight for joy, will join you in the fight to hope in God. It is a fight, and you need brothers and sisters in arms to fight with you. Yes, do what you can to care for yourself physically and isolate potential causes for your depression, but never neglect the most important thing, which is sinking your roots deep into God's Word and cultivating a trust and a hope in Him. And so the Bible acknowledges times of heat and drought and affliction and difficulty. Through many tribulations, you will enter the kingdom of God. But the encouragement we find in Jeremiah 17 is that that's not the whole story. As this man is trusting in the Lord, what happens when the drought comes? He doesn't fear. He doesn't get anxious. His leaves remain green. In other words, he's not going to be completely destroyed by this difficulty. There's still life. There's still signs of life in this person. He's going to make it. He's going to make it through the hard times, not because he's strong, not because he's awesome, but because his roots are sunk deep in nourishing waters. But more than that, look what it says in the end there. It says, this tree does not cease to bear fruit. Even during times of intense difficulty, while everything else is withering away, this tree is able to bear fruit and bless others. Even when the heat comes, even during financial hardship, even when you have cancer, even when you have lost someone dear to you, these things will not ultimately destroy you. Even even then, you will grow and flourish and bear fruit to bless others because your roots are sunk deep into the waters of God's 
word. I think of that scripture that says, though, though outwardly we are wasting away, and I know some of you probably feel that way, inwardly we are being renewed day by day. I think about the Apostle Paul who, who writes about how, how the, these afflictions and, the, and these times of suffering come into our lives, but it equips us to be better ministers to other people who are going through times of sorrow and suffering as well. We comfort others in their affliction with the comfort that we have received from God. The person who delights in the Word of God and meditates on it day and night speaks like the prophet Habakkuk in chapter Habakkuk 3, 17 and 18. It says, though the fig tree does not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. In other words, things are really bad. Yet I will exult in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. Sounds like fighting words again, doesn't it? It's words of defiance. It's a fight for joy. And that is what it means to prosper in the Lord. And that's the state of the blessed man who belongs to God. He has a hope and a joy that is not dependent on ever-shifting and ever-unreliable circumstances. This is the danger. This is the danger of rooting your happiness in circumstances, the circumstances of life. Well, <clears throat> if this thing just changes in my life, then, then everything will be awesome and wonderful, and I'll have everything they, that I need. If only, this, if only this relationship could get in order this way, then, then that, that, that will be great, and that'll, I'll have everything that I need. If I just get healed of this thing or, or that thing, then finally I'll be able to be content. If I could just make a little bit more money, then, then I'll have everything that I need. Those things are unreliable. They shift, they change, and they ultimately will not give you what you need. The blessed man has a hope and joy that is rooted in the reliable and faithful God who does not change. And so even in the darkest of moments, we can be a people whom the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6 are sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Now, the fruitful stability of the godly is further highlighted when compared in Psalm 1 to the life of the wicked. The same wicked, interestingly enough, whose advice and counsel seem so wise and so appealing in the beginning. But in the end, we see that their lives are wasted. Verse 4 says, The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Now, the chaff is, is the husks, the straw removed from the wheat by threshing. So the farmer tosses that threshed wheat in the air, and guess what happens to the chaff? It just blows away, it just scatters. The chaff is useless. Unlike the fruit bearing tree, the chaff isn't nourishing anybody, isn't helpful to anybody, and it's here today, gone tomorrow, forever forgotten. And it's not just that the wicked will perish, but their very way will perish. Look at verse 6, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. That's such a haunting verse. It's not just that the wicked perish, but their way, their patterns of life, all that they deem significant, all that establishes their identity, all that they have chased after and regarded as better and more important than God, all of their ideas, all of their philosophies, it all passes away. It's so haunting. You think about all that men strive for apart from God. 
Think about the most powerful and influential men in history who have shaped the, the course of the, of the world, and the earth has trembled beneath their feet. Kings and emperors and generals and presidents and mighty men, and yet, for those who did not delight in the Lord, and most of them didn't, everything that they built, everything that they accomplished, everything that they worked so hard for and poured so much of their lives into, all of those things perish. They have no significance, no eternal value. It is a waste. How sad that is. And there are millions of people today. They're not dictators or world leaders, and some of them may even be here in this room this morning. They're not on the path of righteousness, the, the way of the righteous, and they're pouring their lives into building their own little kingdoms and getting a nice house and a nice car and a nice dog and 2.5 children, and they're living the American dream. And they are rejecting God all the while. And they get to enjoy their little kingdom for 70 years, 80 if they have strength. And then... That's it. Time's up. It's, it's all over. It all perishes. Everything they did, everything they built, everything they sacrificed for, all those things that they accomplished are like tracks on the beach here today, but then the tide rolls in, and then the tide goes out, and there's no trace of anything to be found. It's like those tracks never existed. The way of the wicked will perish. It's a wasted life. Don't waste your life. Verse 5 says, the wicked will not stand in the judgment. That means hell is the end of their story. And why? Well, go all the way back up to verse 1 and we come full circle. Because they walked in the counsel of the wicked. It all starts with who you listen to and who you believe and what you delight in because delight determines destiny. There are only two ways to live. There's one little problem. Verse 6 says that the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. So only the righteous will survive the judgment in the end. So who's righteous? You righteous? Can you read Psalm 1 and really say with a straight face, yeah, that's me. That is a perfect description of me. Now, don't get me wrong. I believe that there is personal application for everyone in this room in Psalm 1 in regards to how we are supposed to live our lives. I mean, like the past 45 minutes has been application. Uh, We are to strive to be a Psalm 1 people. What we've been reading about here, this is the goal. That's the mark. That's the bullseye. That's the center that you and I need to be aiming for every day. But you know what? I've missed the bullseye. I've missed the mark. And so have you. In fact, that's what sin means. That's what the word means, to miss the mark. I can't perfectly live out Psalm 1. I can't do this. I, me, your pastor, have walked in the counsel of the wicked. I've stood in the way of sinners. I've not always delighted in the law of the Lord. I don't always meditate on it day and night. And if you're like me, if you can relate to what I just said, you're like, yeah, that sounds like me too. Then your next, next natural question might be, well, then is my end destruction also? The psalmist says elsewhere, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, who could stand? 
That's a rhetorical question that we already know the answer to. None. None could stand. That puts us in a pretty hopeless position. But right after he asked the question, who could stand, do you know what the psalmist says after that? He says, but with you, there is forgiveness. The Bible teaches that no man is righteous except one. There is only one righteous man. There is one truly blessed man who totally and completely and perfectly fulfills Psalm 1. Ultimately, the blessed man is Christ. Jesus Christ does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. In fact, when the serpent came up to him and told him, turn these stones into bread, he did not respond as Adam and Eve did when they were tempted. He did not contemplate or consider or entertain the counsel of the wicked. Instead, he turned towards the devil and he said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And you know why he said that? Because his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on it he meditates day and night. In fact, this man doesn't just love the Word of God. The Bible says he is the Word of God. This man is like a tree whose leaf never withers, and whatever he does prospers. And on this man, the prophet Isaiah tells us, the Lord has laid the sins of us all. And as God laid the sins of the world on Jesus Christ... God lays the perfect righteousness of Jesus on all who trust in Him. As Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5, For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. If you've walked into this service this morning unbelieving, not trusting in the Lord, maybe you're one of those fools that I've been talking about today. Friend, the best news that I can give to you for your new year is that Jesus Christ this perfectly blessed man came into the world to save sinners just like you. And if you turn away from the way of the wicked, from the counsel of the wicked, if you stop being a scoffer and receive Christ by faith, you will be forgiven of all of your sins and you will experience the blessing of Psalm 1. Not because you will perfectly obey Psalm 1, but because your life is bound up in the one who did. And the Lord Jesus Christ... And you will be able to say with David in Psalm 32, blessed or happy is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. If you're here as a believer, you need to also remember these things, that all of the blessings of Psalm 1 are found in your relationship with Christ. To heed Psalm 1 for you ultimately means to keep pursuing Christ, keep pursuing that man. Uh, Keep cultivating a relationship with Him. Stay close to Him, the truly blessed man. Stay connected to Him through His Word. In John chapter 15, Jesus uses another tree analogy. He says, As a branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And a few verses later, he clarifies that abiding in Jesus means having his word in us. You see, it all goes back there, doesn't it? It all goes back to the word. If you want to be a strong, solid, fruit-bearing believer during good times and bad times, during times of plenty and, and, and times of drought and heat, during times of pleasure and times of pain, 
then His Word must be in your heart. It is a non-negotiable. That's the whole point of the exhortation in Psalm 1. If you want to have a happy, blessed new year, indeed a happy, blessed life, you must be rooted in and delighting in His Word. You must be rooted in and delighting in Christ. Let's pray.